Hey, what's up? It's Darker Days Radio, episode number 44, The Art of Death. I'm, of course, your host, Mike, and tonight I'm joined by Chris. Hello. Yeah, how's it going, Chris? Everything good over there? Uh, yes, except for snow, and more snow in gloomy Germany. Yeah. We, yeah always, we always seem to talk about weather, don't we? Yeah, well, there's not well, something we've got to talk about. I mean, I've just got my job, which is uh, programming, programming, and more programming and science. So, uh, and, you know, if I talked about that, people would be bored. Um, yeah. Right on, right on. And joining us as well as a uh, guest host is James. How's it going, James? It's all going very well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah it's all going fantastic at the moment. Yeah, and how is the uh, weather on the Isle of Wight? Um really really cold it has been a really bitter couple of months um but you know there, we had some sun recently so i have high hopes you had hopes sun in england yeah uh, i okay. never said we had much but you know <laughs> okay and joining us as well is colin a Sullivan, also known as cas um the developer of Mummy the Curse. How's it going? Hey, how are you guys? Very good. And how's the weather down there in the uh, D.C. area, I believe? Yes, I am in D.C. It's cold, probably not as bad as what Chris is dealing with. But, uh, <laughs> but cold enough for, for me to complain about it. It's gotcha, got right pretty on. It's got pretty damned Siberian here. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. So, Colin, it's really good to have you on the show. I, I'm sure you're very excited with the uh, recent release of Mummy, and uh, you've been doing some really cool stuff as well. Uh, we recently noticed that you were on uh, with the Gentleman Gamer to do a sort of an overview of the game, and uh, also you just played in a game with him for uh, for Mummy the Curse, didn't you? Yesterday, yes. It was a lot of fun. I just wish I hadn't been uh, three days without sleep during it. <laughs> I, I think it shows, but it was, it was ah. a blast. I've yet to watch it, so it should be pretty classic to watch then. Well, now he'll be able to watch for just how tired I was the whole time. Right. <laughs> yeah. We uh, we decided to not watch that uh, to kind of like uh, come into this interview with a sort of a blank slate, uh, not to be uh, influenced by the, uh, I'm sure, excellent game that the uh, Gentleman Gamer ran. So uh, we'll definitely be sure to check that out in the future. It was a, it was a real good one shot, and any time I get to play with Mark is... Uh is fun. He and I are um, a little dangerous when we're together in person, so convention circuits beware. <laughs> gotcha. Um, so with that, let's move on over to the uh, news segment. Alright, so White Wolf has had quite a bit, as the Onyx Path as well, have had quite a bit going on. Um, Hunter Sunday 2 was just successfully funded on Kickstarter, mm-hmm. 211%, and they got some add-ons for uh, Inquisition material, Project Twilight, the Arcanum, and the Mafia. Does that mean, Mike, you're going to run a Google Hangout game for World of Darkness Mafia in the future? Um, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> um, it's actually, Mafia is an excellent book, which, yeah. by the way, uh, Colin here wrote for back in the day, Yeah. and we have a question about that later on. And, uh, yeah, it's really good to hear. Um, I'll be excited to see what's going on with Hunters Hunted 2 and how they update it. Um, I have previously on this show uh, denigrated the original Hunters Hunted book because I'm such a diehard Hunter the Reckoning fan. 
<laughs> I will be happy to see how it's been updated since 2000, or no, sorry, 1992. Wow. Additionally, uh, Vampire the Requiem Chronicle book, uh, Blood and Smoke, has had a lot of developments going on. A lot of cool rulings have been released oh, by yes. Rose Bailey. It's definitely good to see some of that as well. Uh, what particular highlights have been there? Um, I think Predator's the Aura. Predator's Aura, again, yep. that's got a lot of talk. Um, and also some of the extra rules, uh, rewrite rules for animalism, um, yep. which are very interesting. Um, generally, a lot, of the, a lot of the retakes of the rules, I think, I think the way push it a little bit further away from Masquerade, I think that's a fair thing to say, and mm -hmm. make Requiem more of its own entity in that sense but uh, yeah Predator's Aura is awesome um, so I'm, I, uh, I want that book I want that book now I will kill James to have that book Please and then don't. I will kill James oh. again <laughs> oh okay um... I, I would just like to confirm that the Predator's Taint concept and write up were was not mine <laughs> <laughs> don't worry I, I don't have a uh, how did someone put it on something I don't have a uh, homicidal need to uh, deal with that. I, I'm totally cool with Predator's Taint. Um, I can actually look, <laughs> I can look past some of the issues that people have with it. Anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's a discussion for another time. Oh, yes. <laughs> and um, another great thing is that uh, with the massive uh, Reddit Ask Me Anything that Onyx Path did, along with uh, Eddie Webb of White Wolf, uh, we learned uh, some more about Demon the Triple Question Mark. Um, mm -hmm. And we even know that Matt McFarlane was doing a hangout uh, to brainstorm some new powers for the game. So that's cool to hear. I missed that. I'm so gutted I missed that one. <laughs> yep. um, and uh, yeah. in the Ask Me Anything, there was quite a bit of talk about uh, Exalted 3rd Edition and uh, Trinity Continuum. So that's good stuff to hear about. Not something that we've really focused on uh, with the show, but... Um, expect I Darkling. <laughs> expect a Darkling. Expect a Darkling, indeed. And there's also a lot of people that are really uh, trying to get more Chronicle books out for the New World of Darkness. Uh, Stu Wilson, or is it Steve here. Wilson, <laughs> really wants to do the uh, Idigum Chronicles for Werewolf of the Forsaken. Uh, Matt, I'm assuming this is Matt McFarland? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, he wants to do a Goblins Chronicle for uh, Changeling the Lost. Yeah, that and, would be Matt. Yep. And if Dave Brookshaw yeah. wants to do a Mage Chronicle book. Is that any surprise? <laughs> it is not. Oh, it is not. And then Stu, of course, wants to do a Geist Chronicle book, so Kerberoi. Ooh. So, uh, yeah, there's everyone wants to do a Chronicle book. I'm not going to complain. Um, I'm... excuse me. No one suggested a Promethean Chronicle book. Uh, I think if I think that was actually a question on there, and I think oh. Matt said he had an idea. So yes. let's just, you know, if people want it, um, they can just throw their money at White Wolf, uh, uh, I mean, uh, Onyx Path, and, you know, just, yeah, it'll get done. Or, or fund the other ones that got done beforehand, and then the later ones will get done as well. So, you know, everyone wins. Yeah, definitely. And one other thing is that, uh, we mentioned this on the last show, that LARP rules are going to be coming out from uh, By Night Studios. And recently, Shane uh, DeFriest, uh, along with some of the other <laughs> top honchos of By Night Studios, did a short hangout to explain kind of their vision for uh, the uh, Vampire the Masquerade and other LARP rules as time goes on. 
So uh, we'll link to that in the show notes, and uh, you can give it a listen. And the last thing on the news is that our friends over at uh, wadnews.net for um, all your Wilderness MMO news have uh, just recently posted up a interview with uh, Thomas Holt, who is the art director for Wilderness MMO. So um, it's quite interesting just to read how he got into his position and his enthusiasm for the game. So uh, again, we can link to that in the show notes. Indeed. And just going through our own mailbag, uh, we've had uh, some great NPC submissions from uh, Travis Wilson, and those uh, take some of the uh, descriptions of, of possible characters in uh, the original Hunter's Hunted book and give them updated V20 stats, so uh, you can easily use them in your game. And that's going to be in the uh, next Forgotten Lore, isn't it? Oh, yes. I've just been editing and putting that thing together. So I don't know, give it another week or so, and it should hit the website. Including the other submission that we've had, uh, which um, uh, the King's Raven and Look uh, on the White Wolf forums have sent in. And this is rules for uh, hedge sorcery based upon the blood sorcery rules from uh, Vampire the Requiem. So this is hedge sorcery uh, for, for Fae Touched Mortals uh, with, uh, for the Changeling the Lost game. So again, there's a whole stack of new uh, rules and ideas in there. Right on. And uh, we also got plenty of questions for uh, the show today. And mm-hmm. one last thing is that uh, we had a great uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse game with uh, that was run by Andrew Bampton over on the uh, G Plus community through Google Hangout. Uh, so that was really good. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, he's planning to run another Werewolf game in the future. Uh, I'm not sure... He's, he's talking about maybe doing modern, maybe doing dark ages, perhaps doing Wild West. So that's very cool to uh, see. But I would like to announce that uh, <clears throat> I was recently challenged for what game I would play, what game I would run, <laughs> Hangout. And I've accepted this challenge from Peter Marshall. The next game will be World of Darkness Gypsies. <laughs> I might regret this. Is this, on, is this basically you basically announcing that any book can be redeemed <clears throat> if run correctly? I, I don't know. Can, can War of the Darkness Gypsies really be redeemed for what it is? Uh, I'm sure there's some gold in there that can be filtered out. And we tried it on the show. Now we're going to try mm-hmm. it in real life. <laughs> All right. And I think with that... Uh, we will end the mailbag and move on over to our first interview with the scribe. World of Darkness 2.0. Hey everyone, so in this segment we talk about Mummy the Cursed with Colin Suleiman. And uh, one thing you'll notice is that we do not talk a whole lot about like the cool powers or the different splats and that kind of stuff. Uh, it's because it's already been covered in uh, a couple other places. So uh, in the show notes, we're going to link you to an interview uh, between Colin and the Gentleman Gamer, as well as Colin's Gen Con panel on Mummy the Curse. So uh, those two sources should give you a very good idea of what's in the book. Well, in this uh, segment, we're going to focus more on the uh, broader backstory and uh, storyteller aspects. Uh, Mummy also includes a couple of uh, hidden secrets, which are only available to the storyteller, in the core book. So uh, you're going to hear typically Colin mention that, uh, you know, this is something that's hidden for players. Uh, and in the case that you don't want to hear this spoiler, 
you should just uh, skip ahead in the episode, maybe like two or three minutes. All right, and without further ado, let's get back to the show. So during that brief interlude, we had Sam Araya, well-known artist of New World of Darkness uh, products, uh, join us. How are you, Sam? Hello there. Hello, everybody who's listening to the Dark Days. What it was Dark Days or Dark Days? Can't remember. <laughs> dark sorry. Days. Yeah. Dark <laughs> Days. Okay. <laughs> Glad to be here. I think it's my second podcast in my whole life. So I will be torturing you today with my English. <laughs> um, grab a drink and fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> if you have to do any cursing, switch to Spanish. Yes. Oh. I was just practicing all my cursing. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, so now this first part, uh, this first interview is going to be focusing on uh, Colin, the scribe. So, Colin, could you kind of give us your uh, your geek cred, like how you got started with gaming, how you got started with writing, and also uh, White Wolf as well? Uh, I was, I guess you could say, part of the, um, the revised generation. Um, I came in uh, in the late nineties, um, when the games were being revised and, uh, Justin Kelly was being a madman with vampire. And I ran a fairly popular con style LARP. I ran every three months at a hotel. Uh, I made these deals with, and about 150 players at one point. And I started writing stuff that was pretty serious. And I said, I should see if I could get paid to do this. And, uh, sent some stuff to Justin. I invited him to my game, and he came and he played, um, and he had a good time, and he survived the whole weekend. And after that, the work started coming in, and then I ended up the developer on Mummy: The Resurrection, uh, which is the second to last old continuity game before the Time of Judgment. And then I co-wrote Vampire: The Requiem, and a bunch of other stuff, and did a whole lot of stuff for. D&D, you know, Wizards of the Coast, and, um, but uh, was really jazzed to do New Mummy ever since we did Vampire and the New World of Darkness came out. Thankfully, that, that happened, and I, I really got just about everything that I wanted on it, so I'm very pleased. Awesome. But I don't really know about from, from geek cred. I mean, it's pretty easy to, to Google, but I, I, yeah. I've never done anything that was poorly received and that's probably the proudest thing that i can say after scores and scores of projects and books is that nothing that i'm a part of ever gets really panned hey that's uh it's definitely good colin did you start off with uh white wolf games or did you start off with D D or something else uh yeah i was a very typical gamer upbringing i think you know i my gateway drug was D mm. and um played that a lot as a kid and a teen and um when vampire the masquerade came out it really hit my my crowd uh, immediately and directly it was our style our thing and we were playing that like crazy uh pretty soon and then i played a lot of other games just trying them out um but i i pretty quickly got into that and the live action thing which was really um i mean it was enormous in the uh in the mid 90s right so uh you of course have come to us to talk about mummy the curse and uh now that we have the uh, PDF on our monitors, I say <laughs> yeah. this game is crazy. <laughs> it's this got is... everything. It's packed to the the seams. Yeah, it the is. The bandages <laughs> are bursting. 
like I've been pouring over this PDF for the last how many weeks have we had it for? Like three weeks? Yeah, I think so, just about I say we've I say we've had it. All us Kickstarter backers have had it. So hmm. and yeah, I can't wait to have the hard copy because it's it's pretty freaking amazing. Um, you and me both. It's very pretty and uh Sam's oh. is a large part of why. Oh yes, yes. The art I mean again, yeah, the art is makes makes the full experience of it um and james you've been pouring over it as well so we have plenty of i think we've all had a look at at least the start of it i've read it back to front so i think uh we can i think the first thing to say is like obviously if you're into new world of darkness and you're playing all the other games um what would colin what would be your way of selling it to established New World of Darkness players if they're saying mage, playing mage or playing vampire or playing changeling uh, what does Mummy the Curse offer maybe that the others don't or offer that similar kind of what kind of play experience can they expect well it's interesting I would say those are two different questions but in Mummy's case maybe they're kind of the same question because okay. part of its appeal is that it's plug and play it's one of those yeah. games that right out of the box you can see how versatile it is <laughs> yeah and uh that was really the appeal for me um hitting on the early concepts was you know wow a game that really felt simultaneously you know holistic and and sort of um you know presented with integrity but at the same time you know not really inherently narrow i mean you could tell any number of stories um and it has a very resilient um tone and sort of spine to it and i would say that overall the new world of darkness is harder to um to play and tell the kind of stories you want to tell with it without um kind of affecting the coherence or the cohesion mm-hmm. i guess of it because it's so delicate the tone um um but with mummy uh it's kind of i think the best of both worlds it's got um, a little bit more resilient everything for a New World of Darkness game. Maybe a little easier for people to write around than some of the others. Um, earlier you mentioned Promethean, which is a game I really like, but um, difficult for some people to to write around. Mm-hmm. And uh, the other part of that question, I, I would think, that would be appealing for people who've played other games is we've had a couple-year hiatus since Geist, and we come, yeah, other, yeah. we come out the other side of that offering a game that does new things mechanically and yes. so there are some design elements that are absolutely new uh, to World of Darkness players uh, classic or new and uh, that we would like people to give those a try and see what they do to their play experience and if they think it's fun and sort of well wed to their stories and you know that that's part of the appeal for me and that's kind of our mission statement going forward hopefully with you know, not just God Machine and so forth, but Demon and games. And after that, you'll see a little bit more flexing of muscle of the system and uh, uh, really seeing what we can do with the, with the design elements. Why I think myself, Mike, and James say this game's like packed to the seams is because um, there's so many ways like some of the blue books can fit with it really nicely and help support it because obviously. Like there's a whole section that's like here's some new numina for ghosts because obviously mummies being ancient beings are gonna kill people and they're gonna come back to haunt them or piss things off that are looking after ancient relics somewhere. So it's nice how it fits into 
again some of the books which came out because of guys like book of the dead and some earlier ones and it's just it's just well, it, it is fits, it is it a fits. really well wed um concept to what yeah. the core world of darkness is about the core world of darkness just assumes that there's you know ghosts uh, and yeah and, ghosts yeah. people and uh you know grit atmosphere I, and terror and so mummy is you know i would say that a couple of the other games are um, do not benefit so easily from the world of darkness's default view mm. that, that there are ghosts and spirits around. They they can't really take that much advantage of it. Um, I think in Mummy, it's it's perfectly suited to it. The world of darkness um, begets this game uh, very very easily, and so you don't have to go outside the blue books to tell innumerable interesting stories within Mummy. Yeah, one of the things that really impressed me about Mummy: The Curse, just from a kind of broad uh, macro scale is the um, kind of the flexibility of the setting and all the different mm. play options. Uh, for example, I mean, I'm kind of comparing it to uh, Wraith the Oblivion, where if you're going to play a Wraith game, you kind of have to take it whole cloth with all the baggage attached and like explore the Shadowlands and all that. But uh, you can really interact with the mummy on a lot of different levels. You could just have the players as cultists who might not even ever see a mummy, and they're just doing what they think is right to uh, preserve this cult. Or you could uh, have them playing as the Arisen, an entire group of them uh, going around and uh, perhaps um, battling against the uh, Shwanaksen. Excuse my pronunciations of these Egyptian (laughs) words. Yes, that's correct. Okay. And, um, or you could have one mummy and then others who are part of his cult or, yeah, yeah. there's a lot of different, we call them frameworks. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I mean, that's something we've been, we've been using a lot recently, I think, in the, the, the player in the Chronicle Design stuff, uh, James, that we've been talking about, is this whole group templates and or what you've just said right now, Colin, the idea of frameworks. And that's really nice to see that presented in the book. Hmm. Cool. Yeah, that's one thing actually I've had to do a little bit of damage control on since the old last year's convention season is because uh, I mentioned in, you know, panels and stuff that, um, you know, just because it was this sort of snarky, easy thing to understand when I say, oh, what's an example of a framework? Oh, well, we've got the pyramid, ha, 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 which is, you know, you get the mummy at the top. And then so and some people heard that and sort of mispassed it around and said that's the only thing you can do with the game. And well, no, uh, you, yeah. you can, you, you, there's a whole thing written into it. Uh, the concept, basically the mummy version of a coterie or a pack is called a moret. And there's a, plenty of, of like valid story-based reasons for why you have multiple beings who are even this old, old and powerful, um, you know, hanging out long enough to, to pursue things or investigate a, a mystery together or whatever. I mean, it's nice. I think the nice thing about seeing those frameworks is they, they, they feed right back into, and it'd be nice to see those type of things written up again in further books for other World of Darkness games because they're all that, that same way of playing, the ways, the, the ways of playing Mummy can easily be adapted for any of the other ones. So I think they're a real strength and um, uh, uh, just such a nice thing to see in the storyteller section and presented in that manner. Thank so, you. Um, yeah, they're great. I have no problem with them. I, really. I, fretted, I fretted over the actual core book outline quite a bit before there was anyone else was even in, involved in the project. I knew that that was going to make or break. I mean, if, if the guy, you know, spearheading the whole thing doesn't know where he's going from the beginning, it's... Uh, it's a lot harder to make something that yeah. 
coherent and sort of solidly presented. And and so by the time my writers get a hold of it, they say, "Wow, this is we get what's going on here." And and the use of the word count and sort of the, the weight and the focus given, and then within that, who who's tackling which things. And that's why I said at the beginning of this, I feel like I got everything I wanted because not only did I assemble my dream team and cast them, as it were, uh, according to what I thought their strengths were, but I got the artists I wanted. It's uh, it's pretty cool. I think, um, so, like, because you said, like, um, how you essentially had to get exactly what you wanted in there and assemble your dream team. So so um, how does, um, how would you say, sell? how would you sell this game then? What's the pitch to fans of Mummy the Resurrection? Because, um yeah, you've said in I think in previous interviews, there's nothing really stopping anyone using Mummy the the Curse as their first World of Darkness uh, setting to play in. So, how would um, how would you say sell it to you know fans of Mummy the Resurrection? Like, what's what things are similar and what's different enough to make it appealing and exciting and and just you know gets them straight into playing it? Well, I'm sure I'd, I'm happy to tackle that, but I'll start by saying it's it's. Um... I don't want to make it seem like um, a I don't replacement. Want, you know, oh. I don't want those people to think yeah. that I, I don't want their enthusiasm or I don't want them to try this game when yeah. I say what, when I say what I'm about to say. I want those people to, to understand that I I love their enthusiasm and I do want them to play this game as well. But um, uh, in, in the differences part, there's a lot. Mm-hmm. It's uh, you know one is uh, a very meta plot driven uh, dark fantasy game for the old continuity another one is much more sort of versatile universal um and open for a modern gothic horror continuity and so that in a lot of ways they're 180 from each other um which is part of the point to doing it for me i I really liked mummy the resurrection Mm. um but you know there's there's room for all kinds of explorations and when we started sitting down and talking about how the new world of darkness was going to be a return to gothic form one of the first things that popped into my mind was well that's really the way to do justice to the mummy uh sort of in the in people's minds just like i feel werewolf the forsaken was the way to do justice to the werewolf uh mm-hmm. sort of the classic archetype of the werewolf um in a game form you know i like apocalypse but it was definitely an alternate view and yeah. and so uh what i would say on the plus side to fans of mummy the resurrection is that Obviously, it's a role-playing game experience about mummies, and it's set in a world of darkness. And some of the sort of sub-themes are, are exactly the same. You still have these issues of um, sort of memory and responsibility, and um, but they're sort of different things now. Um, you know, uh, Apophis had a certain role in the, the cosmology of the old game and, and the old world of darkness and that is um that's not in the new game but the new game does have the devourer and mm-hmm. um and sort of you know derivative beings thereof also um you know i don't know if you guys have gotten a chance to read the covenant book that that i wrote and spearheaded for vampire it was uh, called belial's brood and it was sort I've- of read that one and i've read it pretty i think i read it page to page and um yeah it's great yeah, well, it was it was my the same thing kind of happened here that happened there which is um you know after the the core book came out and i went and was doing a bunch of other things and and i started to see how it was developing and what the covenant books were looking like and i said i i don't really know if i, I want to trust 
the the presentation of the sort of infernalist or satanist vampire yeah. in, the new, in the new game to anyone else. And I've always been one of those. If you have a vision and you want it done right, you should probably do it yourself. Sort of. Yeah, I found. I was going to say I find Belal's Brood like compared to what's presented in the core book for Requiem, Belal's Brood is an absolute must read because it blows the the scope of that wide open. And I think Mike, did we we talked about that in conjunction with um, Ashen Cults because there's kind of like that type of like occult horror yep. and yep. a mystic horror in there. So yeah, yes. just saying that's a brilliant book. People need to get it and read it, and it's brilliant for anything. Thank you very much. It's it's that was the goal though was to to say <laughs> if you're going to have this in this sort of continuity, if you're going to have it in this presentation, um, it, well, it's very very tenuous you know it would be very easy to do it wrong it'd be very easy to um either regress to the the old concept um or to just do things that weren't really fit with the new world of darkness and with vampire the requiem's themes and i, I mentioned that because <clears throat> it was a similar experience to to doing mummy the curse and and wanting to make sure that those notes were hit right um if you're if you were going to do that and so the people that i that i wanted were going to reflect that uh, the, the sort of the talent that I was surrounding myself. I don't know if that answers your question, but that that they are similar. Um, you know, let's put this, uh, let's present this in the way that fits best with sort of the tone of what we're trying to do. Yeah, uh, I, I, the way I said, yeah, I see what you mean because it takes it takes what was maybe at the heart of, of resurrection and kind of maybe is able to focus in on things easier or refine them easier because it's divorced from the message. Well, and also in specific but, ways. Uh, here, here's, yeah. here's, I guess, part of what I was going to that I, I get off on track. But basically, in Bilal's Brood, you notice that some of the concepts that had been associated with the Sabbat, well, oh, that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's where they appeared. Um, and in essence, everything that hadn't been stolen and used for the Lankaya Sanctum um, okay, yeah. in the core book and in the Covenant book ended up as part of Bilal's Brood. And so that, that part of why that's... Sense. Yeah, and part of why that's relevant here is because a number of the things that were sort of emblematic of Mummy the Resurrection and its story, and going back to Mummy in 1st and 2nd edition, um, that didn't make it into the uh, the core book for Mummy the Curse are going to get nodded to uh, mm -hmm. in the first couple supplements of the line. Uh, one of those is, of course, uh, and I'll actually I'll spoil this right now, is that a very popular element of the old... Uh, game and its continuity were the Bane mummies, which is these seven yeah. sort of evil. Well, <clears throat> Mummy the Curse has the Shuangsen, and there are more than seven of them, but uh, they they only inhabit the role that the Bane mummies inhabited in the old game to half a degree. We still have okay. half of what the Bane mummies used to represent left to nod to. And, okay. and, and people are going to get it. And when they get it, they'll get it. They're, they're, I'll just say now... Um... They're scary as hell, those uh, Shuangsen uh, antagonists, because I read those, and I, we were, I was on Skype early with James, and James, we looked at those, and we were running through the powers, and it was like, oh, yeah. oh so they like, they, like, uh, they like biting sorcerers, and it was like, they're and wicked, yeah. and, and they're, they're, that makes them wicked antagonists for, I think, mage them at some point. So I was like, yeah, I think someone's going to get some really good legs out of all these, um, all these antagonists. There's really lots to run with. I don't so, know if you guys picked wicked. up on this. I know it's only been out for a couple of weeks or in your hands for a couple of weeks. <laughs> um, but one of the things is that um, each of the full page art pieces um, also 
depicts one of the signature characters. Wow. And okay. So the, for example, the guy sitting um, on the ground in the occult pose with his sort of bow spirit over his head, that's the, uh, the scribe signature character onto oh. Um, um, but the one at the beginning of the antagonist chapter that shows this nasty mummy pulling somebody's heart out of her chest, that is the Shuangsen signature character. Okay. Okay, cool. With all that, I think you've mostly answered one of the other questions on the list. So, oh, cool. uh, yeah, I think so. We're going to efficiency like that. Efficiency, yeah. So, Mike, do you want to carry on with the questions list so we keep track? <laughs> yes, let's move it. Sure. Wow, we did actually. We covered a lot of these already. Yeah. Uh, just in the process. Because uh, um, I can get. Wow. Uh, yeah, let's types of stories then. Does that make sense, Mike? Um, sure. I mean, we already kind of talked about that a little bit, but. Um, yeah, uh, Mummy the Curse definitely has a lot of story options, as we mentioned with uh, different different just setups with your chronicle. So, Colin, um, with regard to types of stories, there's definitely like two major structural differences, I, I guess you could say. Um, you can have stories involving the Sophic Cycle, when all the mummies awaken, and you could also have a story which is more of a uh, one-shot with mummies awakening for a specific purpose. So, uh, could you maybe discuss some of your own uh, playtests? experiences with uh with either of those yeah i actually it's interesting you you put it that way because i did play test specifically with that in mind when you set out to create uh, an archetype based on a creature whose default state of being is death um you, you, you the first solution you know the first problem that arises is okay so how do they get active and why and mm-hmm. so the way that it was designed from the beginning i knew i said we're going to have three different ways. There's going to be the classic, you know, you broke into his tomb and that was just a bad decision. Um, and that's sort of a quick, immediate, let's um, solve this problem and go back to sleep thing. And then the cult dynamic and the idea that if they sacrifice Sekum and do a ritual, they can call you if they need you. And then there was this third one, which is sort of a little longer term uh, story potential thing, which is the, the Sophic cycle. And, I wanted there to be uh, ways to tell mummy stories um, that were not that concise and where maybe some of the uh, feeling the pressure of time, it you can play with it. You can either sort of spool it out so that it's not really a concern in the beginning or you can really ramp it up right at the end and make it sort of, you know, I've I've been up and I've had all this time, but I'm running out. And I did playtest different uh, versions of that. You know, the easiest one and the one that you could playtest at a convention or, you know, the one that the starting SAS adventure is based on is the classic, you know, well, you were dead and now you're not and you have a problem to solve. Hmm. Yeah, and one of the coolest things with the uh, Sophic Cycle is um, just the different specific time periods where it occurs as written. Just the oh, way yeah, that mathematically yeah. worked out, it's always like yeah, we got yeah. lucky, didn't we? <laughs> yeah, it's always like the there's risen... some fun errors in there. Just you know, that's just how the math happened. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a little anecdote on that. Um, sure. When I submitted my first sort of big, um, you know, design uh, document, this Bible thing uh, to the boss, he said, "So we've got the five by five thing again," and I said. <laughs> First off, no, technically, there are six guilds, but one of them becomes a player option separate, just like Blau's Brood did. Um, second, 
I didn't create the ancient Egyptian model of the soul. It just so happens. <laughs> yep. It just so happens that it, it is it, it breaks down to these five components. You can go Google it yourself, man. I promise I wasn't trying to force it, and uh, we, we had a big laugh over that. Nice. That's fair enough. It, it, it makes it mesh with a five by five of mage. It looks really it looks really sweet next to it. So I'm yeah, not gonna play. I, I don't mind it, uh, especially <laughs> since we do have the you know we can kind of shunt criticism to. A long dead culture. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> hey, blame them. <laughs> cool. Um, yeah, um, I think that leads us on then. I think we can talk about, because obviously Mike and I and James, we spoke about this, and I think we're going to put major warnings on the show that, you know, storytellers, be aware if you want, if, if you've got players, tell them to miss this episode because we'll mostly talk about stuff that's in the storyteller section then as well. So, um, like, I would say Mummy has quite a different, a different scope to some of the um, the other World of Darkness games, and and this is reflected uh, mechanically because of predominantly the way uh, memory, which is the morality kind of tracker um, in the game, and Sekem operate. Um, and they are quite different, I guess. And this is one of the main elements in which Mummy is different. So, um, do you want to kind of like, Colin? Do you want to talk us through kind of like your thoughts on what led you to uh, to to um, explore these different mechanics and the other uh, other kind of mechanical things in Mummy that that highlight it as being quite different from the other games? Um, yeah, I think that's a kind of spelled yeah, it out. Sure. Uh, I actually, uh, a lot of it came from this sort of beginning idea of an inversion principle. Mm-hmm. And I said, yeah. if I'm, if, if, you know, I wrote on a post-it note when I first started writing up the Bible and I stuck it on my desk, uh, that mummies are essentially photo negatives of vampires and yeah. Yeah. vampires have, you know, they're assumed to be active, and then they interrupt it with these short periods of inactivity, where either they have to, you know, bleed off their blood potency, or they have to, um, you know, uh, basically sit with a stake in their chest for a while. And yeah. um, and and I said, well, what if, you know, the sitting in torpor is the, you know, the norm? And and then the idea of, you know, what the game is really about is expressed itself in that core concept of the descent. It is, it's, it's, it's everything. And, and I really wanted to deconstruct all of it and say, this is, this is how we're going to make this the game experience. And I, and I want people who play this to feel that after every scene, they're going to go, Oh, there's, you know, a little bit more sand has fallen through the hourglass. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, one of the first things that, you know, came to me was in addition to starting out at the peak of your overall power, which is something you don't get to do in the others, and I will say there was an element of fan service to it because I've heard many times over the last eight years from people saying, you know, that chart is cool and I'd love to be a Blood Potency 10 Vampire or a <laughs> yeah. Primal Urge 10 Werewolf, but my game would have to run 12 years for me to get there. And the problems that you have to deal with once you get above seven for almost every one of these archetypes, a Werewolf of the 9 Primal Urge is the likelihood that that being is going to burn out before he gets to 10 <laughs> is pretty high. And, if you're uh, changeling, it's pretty horrific. You're yeah, some, something will happen. <laughs> you know, the Earth will respond and put you down, generally speaking. I, uh, hold on, I'm just, I'm just trying to think of my top of my head. What's, um, 
what happens when you're really high in uh, what's the equivalent for Geist? Uh, something crazy happens there as well. Uh, yeah, anyway, it, yeah, that's the idea. Is that you're you're you know these beings are kind of they become too much of a drain on the world around them, and they kind of have to they get put down. I mean, in in old continuity terms, you know, a being with a ten potency trait running around and being active is sort of a big paradox bubble waiting to happen. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and so this, I said, you know what? I'd love to give people the opportunity to play at potency 10, not just at some point in the game, but as soon as you start playing. And to reflect the idea that that is the dissolution of power is, is, is more of uh, the theme than the acquisition of it. It must change the game. It must really change during playtest. The uh, the dynamic to have players start so high, mm-hmm. and and battle to retain that height. Whereas other play, you know, in other games, you're you're like harvest. You're literally harvesting over over long periods to get to that level. Whereas mummy, yes. you must be like going, Shh, damn, I've lost another second. It's like, what do I do now? Do I commit some heretical act and consume this relic? Or do I just accept it and get on with it and hope that you know I have some other I can maintain my second just a bit longer so I can still have my stats this right. high? Right. <laughs> on a very on a very micro level, uh, yeah. I'll give you an example of the thought process on that the famous chart that all of these new wad games have. You'll notice that they don't really get the same bang for their buck when they are spending their fuel trait to raise their dexterity, and that's because the whole idea is to drive home the idea that. This is one of the slower uh, supernatural creature archetypes. And yeah, also yeah. that the, ultimately running from a mummy works. Like that's kind <laughs> of one of the things. If you're playing in this game and, and, and you go, well, wait a minute. I know enough to know that he's sort of bleeding power every time he takes a step. I'm just going to keep moving. And eventually he'll run out of time and get mad. And then maybe he'll show up again later and come back. But, you know, and so one of the tiny little micro ways to, to really drive that point home was to say, Yes, you can spend your fuel trade to raise your dexterity, but um, you get very little value for it relative to what happens when you try to raise your strength or your stamina. Cool. Um, and frankly, I'm just one of those people, I guess, who feels like, you know, they're not zombies, but to use a, a popular uh, analogy, once zombies can run full speed, you've got a different world. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, if it's a full speed zombie uh, setting, then that is a very different thing from a classic Romero zombie setting. And you know, although there are powers in there that let um, mummies move at great pace, um, those are sort of you know occult assisted things. Uh, it's a little tone breaking to oh, picture a freshly released of... from his tomb mummy sprinting down the street. It sort of breaks tone. Yeah, one of the, one of the coolest powers. Um, I don't know, Mike and James. I don't know if you how much you look through the powers. One of them is basically, um, yeah, nightcrawler. Um, the nightcrawler attack. Yeah, and that's just it's completely badass. <laughs> I read that and was like, yeah, that's that's pretty fucking cool. Yeah. Um, well, they they are incapable of amazing things, particularly um, after they've just been awakened. Um, but that that only drives home the idea that you lose access to those you drop. Cool, um, Colin. Could you talk a little bit about the uh, the five guilds? Um, they seem pretty interesting because they're almost based off of like uh, 
art forms and and also the philosophy early philosophies associated with those um so what was kind of your inspiration for that the inspiration was essentially saying if if i knew i was going to source um the beings that you're assumed to be playing you know the default protagonists to a very specific um made up pre-dynastic you know egyptian civilization part of what i was trying to say had to do with you know the village that it took that they created you know what i mean and so in essence these six guilds and the craft houses that served them were the six mega corporations of their day and you know everyone who was really part of a functioning uh, empire that could work as well as it did for as long as it did um you know would would be a part of this process because that was their culture and that was how you ended up seeing these sort of roles getting spread out. You noticed that now, did you say earlier that we can speak here as though we're assuming that players aren't going to be listening for, to, because they're going to be spoiled? Uh, yes. This was saying that we'd put a big uh, spoiler one on. Yeah, just say All like right. hashtag spoiler and people will like yes. cover their ears so okay. they can't hear. Yes, hashtag spoiler alert. Uh, <laughs> the the Shuangsen, um ended up in existence because the Iramite people who became them were the the undesirables, the unwashed, the slaves and outcasts and, and criminals. And they were all offered up simultaneously. So basically um, the poor and the dregs um, of Iramite society ended up there. And <clears throat> The other six guilds illustrate where the other sort of, uh, you know, demographics of society end up. And so, yeah, part of it ends up philosophical, but ultimately it, it sort of roots back to the six big operations, you know, that ran uh, their empire and their city and people being a part of one of those six groups. Uh, not everyone was, but then those people aren't a part of this story 6,000 years later. They just died and moved on. Right, yeah. Most um, most conspicuous, uh, yeah, conspicuous by its absence is uh, there's no real, like, I'd say soldier guilds at all. And we know that Irem had a huge army, and they were mm. smashing these crazy um, weapons for them, magical weapons. But they're not really there. You have the um, the engravers are kind of like you mentioned that they, in the book that they're the secret police in some ways. Yes. Um, but yeah, the army just isn't there, which I assume is intentional. Yes, it is. It's also if you if you're looking at it from a a narrative point of view, um, the army, as in the case with most um, primitive cultures uh, and still today in some, uh, exists to serve the state. It was raised mm -hmm. separate. They didn't want any one. Uh, of these very competitive 42 powerful beings sort of being the Caesar uh, that would have, that would have um, created problems. So what you actually end up happening is, end up seeing happen is uh, it is the private households of the creators. And so if I'm one of these sorcerer priests and I have people working in my household and they are servants in my craft houses, well, soldiers are not among that number. Soldiers are out, you know, being soldiers. And uh, and that is exactly a, a, an example of the type of you know a, a case that doesn't get representation here. They don't. Uh, they served uh, Iram entire. They did not. Uh, 
they were not part of the individual houses of the Shanayatu. So um, the opportunity to become a mummy and to be buried with your your master and all of that stuff uh, is not available to a soldier. Mm, interesting. So I guess um, a, a soldier, if you the soldier kind of like character would be best as one of the um, embalmed kind of servants of a mummy. Would that make more sense? The, uh, uh, what they call the way to look at <clears throat> Another way yeah. to look at it might be to say that someone who has that mentality mm-hmm. um, yeah. just you know, approaches whatever they do that way. There are, um, I mean, you have to remember, every one of these beings was drinking the Kool-Aid. They all agreed to essentially give up their true name to their master. And, you know, the idea that they would be ritually killed to be buried with him and serve him in the afterlife <laughs> was appealing. Yeah. And, and so uh, there, any given character, if, you, if the player chooses to go that route, he could say, yes, technically I was a smith or I was a laborer um, in one of the, the foundries for, you know, the, the, the alchemists. Um, but my approach now that I serve like this and I run around and I have this power, yeah, I'm a, so- I'm a soldier. You know, I'm, I'm, look at it however you want. I'm the private security or the, the Blackwater for this supercorp. You know, I mean, put it in the, the, the language that you want. But the idea of a soldier mindset could actually be invested in any Arisen character. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Cool. Yeah. Um, uh, Sam or James, do either of you have uh, questions you'd like to jump in with? I really liked... Uh, I really liked how you you wake up as this powerful thing with no no real kind of recollection of who uh, who you are. Um, and the first thing that popped up in my head really was like a almost like a bit of a midlife crisis. You have this, you've got like you wake up and you're in this job and you you have a thing to do and you just kind of go on and do it. I mean that, um, yeah, it's it's a bit weird uh, for for mummies really. You know, it's it's not like you're being handed down your task by middle management. Um, but I, I really liked. Uh, I really liked it. I found myself writing like part of the notes I've taken. I've already started writing up ideas for characters to run when we eventually get around to have a uh, having a game of mummy. Do you know so what I'm, we call that, James? What's that? Uh, this stems back from the '90s. I'm, I'm definitely a child of the '90s. Uh, that we call that the Chup test, uh, named after a friend of mine, Sam Chup, who was one of the early White Wolf guys. Oh, and he's. And yeah. to, to, to pass the Chup test is what you just said. If you can flip through it and you say, you know what, I really want to play this, and or I've just been inspired with a concept or a character or even just a notion that I could build a character around, well, that game or that splat or whatever you're reading has passed the Chup test. <laughs> so I that's always nice to hear. I think it's passed two on my case then, hasn't it, James? Because um, I've been talking with James about how I, I think I might run a Geist Chronicle set in London but with a mummy antagonist, because I read through it and I was like they're kind of perfect for it, so I was I, like, I, screw I it. <laughs> I, I, would, I would run that, because one of the things I like doing often, I've done this with Promethean, because I've not run that yet um, is I've used a new game as an antagonist in a game, I'm already running just so I can get a handle on how things work. So I've used Promethean and Changeling, which was kind of weird. But Promethean with guys, it just kind of like, I looked at it and went, that's just so freaking good that it has to be done. Just to have a bunch of poor Sinitas go, holy shit, what power is he pulling off? Um, who did we piss off? And he's only just woken up. Um, You've hit on something interesting, which is that you can create your own sort of separate 
sub-world of darkness just with the mm. blue book, which is dead people and people, and vampire. Oh, yeah. Mummy, Promethean, and Geist. Uh, this is essentially the undead subset of the world of darkness. And yes. it, that type of sort of crossover crucible uh, seems really like, uh, you know, cooperative. Like a, those things could really go together without uh, the tone breaking and the entire thing sort of coming down around your ears. I think it's a little harder to start introducing the other archetypes, but if you were to have a contiguous world of darkness that sort of presupposed that all of those archetypes were real, yeah. uh, it would still cohere pretty well. Well, actually, I think it's it's quite interesting you say that because um, I think there's actually more crossover that you could do with, with werewolves than you originally um, realized because I was reading a uh, an article where there was... Um, it actually wasn't an article. It was on QI, of all things. Um, scientifically... Uh, jackals would not have actually existed in ancient I Egypt. So in the time of Iram, technically, they, jackals wouldn't have existed. They would have still been closer to wolves. So you never know. You could That's how you could kind of mangle a connection sure. in some case. So we'll just throw that out to the players out there and the GMs. Like, if you want to do something, it's doable. Um, they were and, my favorite tribe in the old werewolf. Yeah. Uh, Excellent. Um, and, like, obviously one of the things I think one of the main themes that I really like about Mummy is it kind of gets kind of, like, even kind of the kind of classic Cthulhu kind of thing of, like, what's this relic some mortal picks up and he's got it in his collection and it's capable of horrific powers. And I think Mummy really taps into that ancient kind of, like, evil power that has to be set to rest and it kind of resonates with some of the play styles that are also available in mage as well so again it re it works in tandem with that really well and that's why you know when you read it i think this is why mike is equally excited about reading through it and same for james is that it slots in so nicely in everything yet because it's such yep. a packed bloody book it exists on its own so neatly because as i said it's got so many numina you don't need to buy any more blue books, but if you did, if you bought Book of the Dead, then you're, you're freaking loaded for even more storytelling potential. And um, that's really great. I mean, the thing that, because I've read the Book of the Dead, and that's a really good uh, Water Darkness Guys book, and so I was really excited in the storytelling section, reading about the Duat and the um, how Anubis, or uh, in the ancient time, his uh, uh, Anpu, Anpu, and yes. uh, yeah fits into their cosmology and the idea of the uh, the ladder and these two ginormous, you know, gigantic mountains at both ends of the duet. And, um, you yeah, know, when I read that, um, I thought it's, it totally fit with um, everything I was hoping for. And even more so because I wrote a... Um, yeah, so we do a small um, easing for Darker Days, so I wrote a ceremony for Geist about the journey that um, pharaohs take through the Duat. And so reading about the journey that mummies take through the Duat, seeing each of the 42 judges was awesome. And so I can't wait for that bloody book about each of the judges. Um, which really brings us on to the next question, I think. The next book in, that we expect to see is... Um, uh, I'm trying to remember now. It's... Um, 
Colin, you must know which book we're expecting. Hold on, let me think. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's called <laughs> Guild Halls of the Deathless. Yes. So, um, can you give us any teasers on how that will build on the main book and kind of how we should expect to see um, the Mummy, the Curse world expanded for us? Absolutely. And in fact, I came on here planning to, exactly to tell to, that to, to, to spoil something that uh, hadn't been released about that yet, which is that. Um, well, as as you could imagine from the name, it's our giant combo splat book for the five guilds, and um, so each one of them will get um, material, fleshing them out and sort of revealing a little bit more about their their backstory and sort of how their thinking came together over the millennia. And the other thing, though, that it will do is <clears throat> you mentioned Promethean and Promethean Chronicles, and that's and he might have an idea. Well. We kind of already got one, which was uh, expressed in the sub the supplements to to Promethean, and uh, Mummy is doing the same thing. And so the okay. first the first story in the Metaplot Chronicle for Mummy uh, is part of Guildhalls of the Deathless. Awesome. Yeah, it is. It, and, you know, as you can imagine, it's going to get explored through the supplements, and then when that chronicle is sort of told, we're going to compile it all and and. Uh, you know, let people, if they want, get the whole thing and run the whole thing back to back or whatever. That that sounds about kind of what I wouldn't mind running at some point. Um, I, I mean, one of the other books I'm really excited to see is um, is the city book for Rio, um, because again, any World of Darkness city book set outside of the United States is a good is a is a great extra book to have. I I really felt strongly um that one of the things that we had to do coming out of our um you know our hiatus as it were uh after Geist um you know we sat down and I said I think philosophically um in addition to it being a really great idea and I think sort of its time had already come um it it also represents sort of the new thinking moving forward which is that um, there should be an international signature setting for every one of these new games. And, um, you know, uh, we're living in a, a singular world more than we ever have. And um, in addition to the fact that um, we're running out of really evocative American cities, I mean, I don't want to see uh, a new game be given Topeka, Kansas or something. Uh, <laughs> you know, it, it, it doesn't feel <laughs> particularly just. Um, and yeah. it wouldn't be a, it wouldn't be the fault of that game or its archetype. It would just be sort of bad luck of the draw. Mummy actually suffered a little of that because I, of course, wanted to do Mummy very quickly after the big three. You know, mm -hmm. I, I respected and understood the decision to do something brand new after the big three, and that's why we came with Promethean. But if you'd asked me what would have been the first new wad game after Promethean, I, I wanted it to be Mummy, and I, that, I was the little voice, you know, in Rich Thomas's ear every single year, going, Can "Mummy this year, please, Mummy." <laughs> And so, and that's nothing against Changeling and Hunter and, and Geist. Those are great games. Um, but, you know, I was a mummy guy, and I, and I was very excited to see it done. And, you know, so I knew from the beginning, yes, we'll still have our American signature setting, but there needs to be an international one, too, and I want to fight to get it, um, you know, give it its due and have lots of word count devoted to it and get good writers to do it. I think Rio's um, quite exciting on many levels because... Let me just get this right. Uh, I mean, Rio's going to become quite uh, relevant 
in future because uh, Brazil in general with um, the Olympics in future, I believe, are going there. Um, yeah. Next year yeah. is, is the World Cup is going to Brazil. And okay, yeah. Years after that, the Summer Olympics are going to Brazil. Yeah. I'm actually going to be there for both of those. Oh. And um, it is, it, it's also, you know, potentially rising superpower. Yeah, it's a very, you know, yeah. an obvious notion, I think. Um, and, of course, Rio is, uh, being in South America, obviously, that gets you into um, South American mummies, I guess. I, I don't know how that exactly you foresee people wanting to tie that into the game or how you want that tied into to mummy, but obviously that still excites people as mummies occurring anywhere in the world in some form. Um, and the other thing why I'm excited about Rio is because um, it ties into my city of love, which uh, James has had the joy of playing in a, uh, a Isn't short... that Paris? Uh, my city of love is Venice, um, oh, which excellent. is why I wrote the massive um, changing setting for Venice. Oh, and oh, so man. one of the things that Venice and Rio share quite well is Carnival, which we've just even yes. gone. So I would like to see Rio obviously done because it gives me an excuse to take the Court Carnival of Changeling and go, mm, let's just give it a more Brazilian theme and and I can I can basically kind of have a look at it through that think, kind of lens. Chris, I'm going to officially like that post of yours. I think if we had had the foresight to do uh, an international signature setting for Changeling when it came out, I would have, in addition to Miami, Florida... I would have done Venice. I'm right. There. Have you have you actually downloaded my yeah, my PDF for that? I'll send it to you. No, I'd love to see it because I think yeah, yeah, Venice done. is a great choice for an James is James James. You've played oh, in that. I I had I had such a lot of fun. <laughs> it was good. Um, I mean, I've been there like what three times. I got I got married in Venice, so I had to I had to write it after my uh, first time there. And Venice is wicked. And it works changing really well. And also, I have a way of tying mummy to it. So I will endeavor to write that up because there is something that ties mummy to Venice. So, um, in fact, it'd be a relic. Hmm. Well, I mean, like, like you pointed out, there's you can potentially tie mummy anywhere because they've had millennia of this sort of diaspora. And oh, the, yeah. That's fun. And that's well, why I chose why to have the so first the opening fiction feature this sort of sub Saharan African. You know, <laughs> yeah. big, big black skin, black guy, uh, you know, amongst a tribe of Inuits surrounded in snow. And, you know, to really illustrate that this is not restricted to the Middle East in any way. It's, uh, yeah. you know, because of what these beings are, they're everywhere. I mean, that kind of, it, I mean, that's, again, it expands, like, as you say, the diaspora of it. Again, um, it's why maybe it'd be interesting, something I suggested to Mike as we look at, lands of ebony and ivory from vampire the masquerade and kind of look at what we can what people can use for vampire requiem kindred of the ebony kingdom and, and again it'd be, it'd be great to reclaim some of those ideas and use them in requiem because again they could make great antagonists maybe for mummy the curse so we should definitely do that like <laughs> we should definitely do that. yeah we'll, we'll look into that in the future all right. Um, are there any other questions for Colin, or shall we move over to Let's the? I got a question. <laughs> okay, Colin. When do I start working on the next book? All right, go for it. Uh, uh, it is. If it's up to me, I would. Uh, I would basically put you on reserve. Uh, there, a lot of the great games that I have enjoyed over the years definitely had a singular 
visual voice. Um, you know, Brahm became the look of, of, of one uh, setting. Um, Tony Dietrichlitzi became the look of one setting. Um, and to me, Sam's look and his style is, is what Mummy sort of looks like. And so for consistency's sake, if I could just chain him <laughs> to a desk and feed him Mummy stuff, I, I certainly would. <laughs> That's great. That's a huge compliment, by the way. Thank you very much. Sure. Right on, right on. All right, I think that's it for uh, this uh, interview with the scribe. And with that, let's move on over to the secret frequency. Oh, yes. So, uh, on this Darker Days, uh, the secret frequency takes us on a tour through one of Mexico's creepiest islands, an island of mutilated dolls. So, Mexico's Ilsa de las Munecas, though I'm sure Sam can <laughs> confirm my pronunciation possibly on that. Um, anyway, uh, it's one of the un most unnerving uh, places on Earth. In the trees hang the uh, mutilated, damaged, dirty baby dolls. And there's a reason for this. So, the, the island is located in the canals of uh, um, let me get this right. Exochimilco. And the story goes that a girl drowned off the coast roughly 50 years ago. The island's only inhabitant, a hermit uh, known as uh, Don Julian Santa Barrera, uh, was there. And shortly after the girl's death, he started finding dolls in the canal. He feared these were a sign of an ancient evil, or at least an evil ghost, or an evil spirit. And so he began to, hold, uh, to hang the dolls from the trees as a way to uh, direct the evil spirits away from himself and to placate the ghost of the dead girl. Soon he began searching for more of the dolls in the canals and in the trash near the island, and even began trading for more dolls. And he hung these from the trees on wires, and even keeping some of the dolls in his own cabin. Over time, even the dolls uh, that were already battered and broken became distressed and obviously corroded. And so, of course, he got more. And, of course, the island got its creepy uh, uh, renown. And tourists began to come along. And they began to see Barrera and take pictures of the island. But Barrera, for all his superstition, drowned in 2001. And so, the island remains as it is, with the dolls hanging from the trees. So, how could we use this creepy location of our own world in the world of darkness? I'm gonna throw it over to my compatriot James. James, you've played in my games, how would you imagine me possibly using them against you? Um, I mean, one of the things that comes up with, uh, I suppose this is almost riffing on uh, the earlier story of Robert the Doll as a <coughs> with fetch. Don't mention Robert. But, <laughs> but almost not like an, an island completely like covered in fetches or something. You know, if that they keep uh, they keep washing up in the river. Um, oh, maybe, that's interesting. Maybe he's uh, maybe they're trying to um, well, basically yeah, to keep finding them and hanging them up to try and ward off 
off furthermore, because supposedly with the um, with uh, Don Julian, when eventually he did die, he supposedly drowned in the same place that he'd found the girl. Yeah. Um, almost as if you know this this fate that he's tried to stave off, this uh, this angry ghost has still not been um, appeased. It, it's interesting you said the word fetch because the idea that like. Obviously, spirits in the world of darkness grow from a moat, fr- um, from a place that has the right resonance, into a spirit. It'd be interesting that each of these dolls all contains a spirit of the same type, so he's trapping them one after the other as kind of like a, a way of creating, you know, literally creating a, a spirit trap. And so each of them contains a spirit that, if it was taken from there, the doll was taken from there, would be a fetch in its own right. Oh, wait, wait, no, no, no. No, this is this is the uh, changeling Dexter. All right, <laughs> he kills fetches and then just throws them in the canal, and then just keep piling up on this island. <laughs> oh, hold on! That's yeah, there awesome. we go. Yeah. Um, no, another option is that uh, this could be um, actually going with a similar idea. It could be a, kind of a breadcrumb trail for uh, uh, maybe kindred. <coughs> excuse me. In uh, in New Orleans, uh, in, in Vampire the Requiem. Um, because they have such a strong uh, voodoo culture down there, uh, according to that source book, which was, by the way, written by Colin and a uh, friend of the show, Ari Marmel. Uh, another idea I had was, um, again, uh, geez, same idea pretty much, breadcrumb trail for uh, a Pentex factory. They might just be dumping these polluted dolls into this canal. So that's another thing you could chase down. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Um, I would go with Promethean. Um somehow I would think that possibly each, it'd be a horrific experiment gone wrong, that each of those dolls is a Pandora, and there's a Promethean on the island who's made every single doll. That's a lot of times going wrong. <laughs> but hey, that's a, an idea. Or someone's dumped, or maybe it's a place where Prometheans dump their failed experiments, and they all turn up as these dolls on that island. You know how like, um, ocean currents cause pollution to end up uh, around certain islands. Maybe it's the same sort of thing. Um, hmm. yeah. Shall we throw this out to our esteemed guests on ideas for uh, how they would use this in their own games for old or, or new World of Darkness? Sam, you want to go first or me? No, you <laughs> go first. You go first, please. Um... I like the challenge of an exercise, so I would probably sit down and come up with something for every game that I liked about a different way to plug it into that game's ideas and sort of make it fit. But I do like the idea of... Um, I'm always about the creep fest when it comes to World of Darkness games, um, which is why I have a little bit of problem with some of the lighter things that have been put into them, because that's not very dark. But. Yeah, so if I'm running it, it's it's going to be something that heightens the creep factor, probably. And uh, one way to do that that's always fun is you get your players thinking that they have to figure out what the source of the problem is. And so it's just, you know, it's, you know maybe it's the changeling who's killing the edges, or maybe it's there's this spirit that's sort of doing something. Um, and Chris actually hit on one way that I would go, which is actually each of these things ends up a bad guy and so right when they think they can discount the phenomenon itself and they're looking for the source and trying to put a stop okay. 
it, it becomes a whole lot of its, and suddenly they're trapped on an island, and they're outnumbered, and they have literally Island of the Dolls they have to fight. Uh, and not necessarily, you know, pulling themselves off their strings and running around Chucky-style, but whatever it is they represent. For example, if they were Pandorans, well, they wouldn't look like dolls for very long. No. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Sam, you got a, an idea how you use it in New World of Darkness or Old World of Darkness? Yeah, I got one, and I got to say, uh, I, I get to say that I really love what I hear so far because, let's face it, there's nothing more creepy than dolls, <laughs> and there's nothing more creepy. The only thing more creepy than a doll it's a group of dolls hanging from trees. <laughs> but seeing that all of you are. Um, some of the ideas are concentrating on the antagonist factor of the dolls. I maybe try to give it a twist, and instead of the dolls being antagonists, I will have uh, hunters, the hunters of, of that Mexico, that Sony Mexico, will have to ritually throw in a doll in the river or in the island. Oh. And so a new group of hunters arrives to the island and maybe they're searching for clues for something and when the uh, each doll meets serve to backtrack uh, the creature uh, the previous creature so it will be um, used as uh, some sort of clue to maybe find the vampire or the werewolf or the whatever that we're looking for no that's totally that's totally wicked that is Completely. That is. That goes. That's like totally extra to everything else that we've all said. Cool. That, Thank you. That adds, that adds a complete extra dimension to it. Wow. Yeah. James, Mike, I'm completely tapped out. I can't think of anything <laughs> more pre-dolls. Um, um, the only thing I would say is it'd be great if they all combined together into some grotesque kind of uh, <laughs> gestalt creature of dolls. Well, one one of the the truly horrific things that I've read in one of the articles is that a lot of the dolls get used as um, insect nests so spiders oh. will lay their eggs inside the doll heads and <coughs> then spew out hundreds and hundreds of spiders and I mean there's you've got to have some kind of chthonic entity basically that is cheery that's complete yeah. as that's that's Asli from Werewolf yeah the whole the whole <laughs> island is a spider host from Werewolf <laughs> <laughs> um, brilliant yeah, I, I actually think I, I can't look at any of these uh, the video, the picture galleries anymore. I'm I'm <laughs> too out. Hold on, so James, you actually looked at the picture galleries? I've uh, I've had I've had them up the whole time, and there's this creepy doll reaching out. Like one of the, one of the dolls is like it looks like it's reaching out to whoever's taken the photo. And yet yeah, no, he's, he's oh no, I've got an idea. I've got an idea. I've got an idea. It's classic. So Mike, uh, yeah. Pentax, yeah. yeah? So what if all these dolls are made with Pentex brand plastics and it's all kind of coalescing together and once it reaches a critical mass, it all combines together to create a amorphous blob of plastic a la the blob ready to consume things. And thus a and becomes some sort of femori kind of crazy piece of, I don't know, spirit of... Um, I guess it would be a spirit of decay and and like plastics and and uh, modern man-made materials. Yeah, no, it's a great antagonist for Werewolf the Apocalypse because that's something that they can't claw through. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, the 
revised book on those. Uh, for which? It was, called, it was called Possessed, and it was essentially uh, a combination of Freak Legion revised and then oh, okay. Freak Legion for the Weaver and then also the Wild. And uh, I've, only, I've only played in a Freak Legion game, which is weird. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I asked because that was me and Matt McFarlane again. Um, and uh, he and I had some fun chats at the start of that about, you know, what what revised needed to do to Fomorai. And um, um, and I had a blast writing my stuff for that. The uh, uh, the Wilds version of Fomorai are called Gorgons. And that was some of the most freely imaginative work that I did for the Classic Wad was just getting to just define this weird concept of the... And the Weaver version were drones. Mm. And... Uh, yeah, that was a really fun project. That was the the only book I ever wrote for Old Werewolf, actually. Nice, good stuff. Cool. All right, I think that's just about it for the secret frequency, isn't it? Yes, I, I would just so. like to close with a, with a thought, which is that Sam is totally right. Dolls are really creepy, and <laughs> in, inherently. And uh, when Stephen King had announced that he was going to write an episode of The X-Files right before the show ended... Uh, they announced it, and at the same time, they said his episode will revolve around a creepy doll. And I said, "Of course it will." Mm. Stephen King. <laughs> <laughs> That's genius. Yeah. Oh, by the way, speaking of TV shows, I remember watching a an episode of some series called The River, which has one episode inspired on on this doll island. By the way, don't watch that show; it's horrible. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Good to know. All right. Awesome. And with that, let's move on to our interview with the artisan. So, Sam, how's it going? Good, good. As I said before, I was just playing Shadowrun, our main, our main tank in the game was going to be was was knocked down, and we were trying to save him. Right. <laughs> so, it's good. It's all good done here in Paraguay. Cool. We always like to start off by asking uh, about your kind of geek cred and uh, how you got into uh, gaming as a hobby and into the industry itself. Yeah, well, it's uh, there's a bit of a story in here because well, in South America, in Paraguay at least, it wasn't easy to get a role-playing game. In fact, long before we had the internet, you know, back in the time when we had dinosaurs also in the streets... <laughs> I used to read those, those uh, choose-your-own-adventure books, and there was a series of them which were done in the Dungeons & Dragons universe. Mm. And they had some very cool covers by Larry Elmore, if I remember well. Um, I remember seeing the, announce, the, the, the announcement of uh, Dungeons & Dragons coming in Spanish, and I remember reading... Hey, there's a board game that needs no board. Wow. How'd you do that? Mm. <laughs> That's magic. And I began hunting for that mysterious thing called Dungeons and Dragons. And the only thing that I managed to get was one of these golden boxed old PC games uh, inspired in Dragonlance. Oh, was it was I it Champions I, of Crin? No, it was uh, the Dark Queen of Crean. It oh, was okay. the, the third one. Yeah. And in fact, it was so rare to find 
anything related to role-playing games in Paraguay that I, I found this game and it, had, it was in Korean. You know, the text <laughs> of the game was actually in English, but the manual, with, and it also came with the journals. So back in the day, instead of torturing you with lots of text describing, you just refer to the journal mm -hmm. that's in fully Korean. <laughs> Wait, the, so, but with those games, you had to type in what the journal said, no, right? No, 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 this one, this one was actually a bit advanced. So you just have to refer to the, all the backstory in the journal, which I didn't know. Okay. <laughs> so uh, I did lose track of that. That was back in the day when I was 10 or 11 years. So that flight forward in time when I was 15 or 16, I can't remember well. I was studying Japanese because I was interested in, uh, well, the, the first and foremost excuse for a 16-year-old to learn Japanese is obvious to understand anime yep. uh, mm -hmm. or the Final Fantasy series in Japanese. And uh, one of my Japanese, one of the Japanese students uh, saw that I had a Timothy Bradstreet, sorry, Tim, I can't pronounce your name due to my lazy Spanish-speaking tongue. Uh, so that I had one of these of his drawings uh, glue in the glue in 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 front of my journal in the cover, and he comes to me and said, "Well, man, you play vampire masquerade." No, I have no idea. What what the hell is that? It's a role-playing game. A role-playing game. When we play, when we start to play, that. and uh, he had, uh, he actually said, "Oh, I was just uh, looking for people here in Paraguay that uh, that uh, are interested in that kind of stuff because I haven't found anyone yet, and I'm starting to do uh, a group with a Werewolf Chronicle. It was Werewolf the Apocalypse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we ran, we played. It was." Love at, at first sight with the game. I mean, not with the storyteller or something. <laughs> and I had also one fun anecdote. I remember going to a library store in Paraguay and asking, "Hey, you have Vampire the Masquerade?" And they said, "No, sorry, sir, we don't sell books on the occult in here." But <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, well. It became love at first sight. Um, I, I of, of course, one of the big selling points for me was the art. Um, of course, I, yeah. I, yeah, I, I never was really into comics. For some odd reasons, I never could get into superhero comics or most of that stuff. But for, for some strange reason, I always, I, I felt more interested in the art of, of the White Wolf books. And, and if... And, and after that, sometime, uh, sometime uh, some passed, and I was ending school and saying, oh, man, it, it would be so good to work as an illustrator for one of these companies. But I don't think I'm good enough. <laughs> so I toyed with the idea of becoming a writer. I, in fact, I wrote like 20 pages of some proposal for the Akashic Brotherhood uh, Splatbook, which hopefully nobody will 
ever look at that because it was atrocious. And some time passed on, and I my, I got my clothes into the storyteller's no, it was not the storyteller's guide, it was the player's guide or the guide to the technocracy, which has a some Photoshop art by Christopher Shai. Mm -hmm. Yes. I don't, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his last name. Christopher Shai, yeah. And it was, man, just working with photography, this could be so easy to do. I could totally do that. And obviously, uh, three weeks after I started working with photography, I realized that that wasn't <laughs> exactly the case. And I, I I started working on that developing style and built a portfolio around that, around horror illustrations. And I was studying graphic design at the time. I was started to become very disillusioned with the idea of working as a graphic designer. And one night I quit school. I came back to my house and I said, okay, let's do this. Let's see how we submit to companies. And I found, I found the website of Pagan Publishing. And two hours later, John Tynes, I, uh, I assume most of you guys are familiar with his work. I wasn't at the time, but he's a genius. Uh, wrote me that he will love to work with me. And I, I also started working with a company called the Apophis Consortium. And they also offered me a job at the same time. And incidentally, the job was in a book with Christopher Shai. <laughs> so that was my baptism of fire. Right on, nice. And uh, how did you start working with uh, White Wolf? Did you just send in a couple submissions once you got established? Yeah, uh, you know... Uh, I always have this problem of not knowing if White Wolf was accepting, accepting submissions via email and mailing stuff. It's always a problem, in, uh, at least in Paraguay. I don't know if in the rest of South America, hmm. but we, we ha I have quite a few horror stories of uh, packages being lost. For example, I'm a, a big metal fan. Um, I used to do, I, I wanted to do something that was called tape trading back in the day when you had uh, somebody will send you a blank tape and they will record in the in, in that cassette a number of songs of bands that they thought you might like and so you will discover new bands but I started that and never ever got a response <laughs> mm. <laughs> so I was pretty skeptic about that so I was in I, I was in a uh, email list um, email group I can remember that where the moderator worked with White Wolf, and one one of the posters in here in there jumped in on the chance and asked, "Hey, okay, how how could I get a work with White Wolf?" And he said, "Oh, well, I could recommend you. I could give you try to talk to Richard Thomas if he's okay with being flooded by submissions by some unknown artist." And thankfully, Richard said yes, and I started working on the first uh, big book of the New World of Darkness, which will be, of course, the Book of Darkness main rule book. Yeah, uh, we had Rich Thomas on the show over the summer, and he mentioned that uh, your wheelchair artwork 
was one of his favorite pieces. Yeah. <laughs> I I, oh. I will I will um I will second Richard's selection and say it pretty much that picture defines that entire bloody book. That is it. <laughs> I mean, because your work, um, I think at this point we can say like your work uh, for Water's Dance books appearing like the Water's Dance core book. Um, you've done pieces that turn up in like werewolf um uh and turn up in a lot of promethean uh books or are covers to promethean books and also to uh which book is hunter slashes mm. and you know if i was to think of a you know images that encapsulate new world of darkness oh, pretty much you. every That's... image is yours sam so <laughs> That's good and, to hear. And you know, we've now got Mummy, which is festooned with with your um, with your artwork. Chris, and... now you know yeah. why I wanted him. <laughs> yeah, yes. yep. People say, "Well, who's who's your look? Who do you want?" I said, "Sam and Chris. That's who I want." Yeah, well, because Christopher Shy's work, you know, kind of <laughs> at the time encapsulated Mage the Ascension to me. Because like, mm-hmm. I got into Mage the Ascension at first, and he had all the wonderful full color pa- pages. Uh, for the tradition books and had the black and white versions in the core book. So, you know, Sam, your work is pretty much is pretty much bloody it for, for me for um, for Mage. I think the, uh, not for Mage for New Order's Artists. I think the only other person which I think whose work next to yours encapsulates some of New Order's Artists, and I think encapsulates a, it kind of is iconography uh, of it. Is um, who's the artist for Werewolf the Forsaken? Yeah, I was actually um, just trying to think know, of his name. The one who does the uh the, the very sharp corners. Yeah. In the pencil work. Oh, and, yeah. And that's what I mean. It's like it's games have it's really nice when games have a particular style of artwork that that is that 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 kind of sums up the feel of the game. Just as like um Oh, why am I lost for names right now? Like Mage the Mage the Awakening has a particular look because it's um, uh, James or anyone help me. <laughs> you, you know what I mean? The name of the artist yeah, who I, Mage, I for Mage, Mage the Awakening, the Awakening uh, it was Michael Caluta. Yes, yes, yes. Of, of course, yeah. And of course, that book feels so so Mage. complete because his art is through and through for in that, and also the same with many of the books and. Yeah, you know, Sam, your work through you know all the new Water Darkness books and in Mummy and in you know ver- in in Hunt in like for Spirits and and for Hunter and stuff. It just it really kind of ties all the books together really really well. And yeah, you, you, that's all I can say. It's it's awesome and thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, you know, I grew up looking at this stable of artists that inspired me, like Tim Brasted, Vincent Locke, Guy Davis, Christopher Shy, of course, um, Ken Major Jr., and, and how could I forget two of my favorites, which are uh, Joshua Gabriel Timbrook mm-hmm. and John Cobb. And it's really a, a huge, 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 gigantic compliment to hear that. And also, it's funny because the wheelchair picture was the first one I, <laughs> I, I nailed it for White Wolf. I remember very well 
when I got that brief, and Richard said, make an, uh, a spooky scene. Make something that will terrify you. And okay, <laughs> let's do that. Uh, can I just say, I think, um, is it in its uh, World of Darkness Ghost Stories, uh, the terrible tale of James Magnus, which is my favorite um, SAS. Well, I guess it was kind of pre-SAS back then. But anyway, it's like one of those pre-made uh, adventures for World of Darkness. And again, all your artwork is in there to uh, depict the characters and the scenes for it. And again, it's, um, it's, it's pretty, it's bloody awesome and really kind of sums up the, uh, the, the look of it. Oh, thank you. Uh, that book also has one of my favorite pieces from New World of Darkness. It was done oh, yeah. by Agus Hall. You might remember it. It's the big tree with the hanging oh, yes. Yes. person. That piece is just terrific. Terrific. Oh, here's Colin coming back to life. Yeah, it's coming just back like a mummy. <laughs> like a mummy. <laughs> well, I just added him, so hopefully you can get him back. Um, yeah. And while we have this short interlude, the Werewolf the Forsaken artist is Abrar Ajmal. Oh, okay, great. Yeah, he's yeah. pretty rocking. He is, he is pretty, pretty damned rocking. I mean, yeah. Well, he sums up Werewolf through and through to me. Anyway, um, we should ask some other questions. Um, yeah. So I think, um, kind of, what's the process for you for like creating your pieces for a uh, a particular game, or maybe for like a um, a cover of a of a um, you know a CD cover for a band? So like you know you get you get say maybe I'm sure you get you get some sort of uh, concept from the art director or the band and to give you an idea or maybe a sketch and then how do you kind of proceed from there kind of what's the kind of sequence just so you can get a feel for kind of the hard work you put in yeah well uh, first of all there's one big thing here and that's there are basically uh, various kinds of art directors there are art directors that have this powerful image in their mind and they want you to grab your hand and pull back that image of that is brain and that's the way I don't like to work <laughs> <laughs> okay uh, uh, but uh, when I work with White Wolf and with bands they usually send me either the book or some sort of small note telling me describing a scene when I work with bands I usually just ask guys you have a concept or do you just want me to develop one based on your lyrics and let's make clear that I actually enjoy the later more but either way it's fine with me and mm -hmm. in, it's ironic but usually the bigger the band the more freedom that you got for example with Cradle of Health, they just sent me uh, the lyrics and okay do what you want just send us a, a sketch so we can approve, look at it, and make sure it's not, you know, uh, bunnies giving candy to children <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. And, I'm and sure then, that'd be really good in an ironic sense. Or, yeah, uh, I, I, I'm still waiting for that phone call telling me, okay, the bunny idea has to go. We're making a Blu-ray with that. No, but... Uh, um, 
usually the smaller brands have tighter concepts, uh, and this is by no means uh, demeaning those bands, but they usually are, may, maybe they don't get, uh, because they are starting, they are so enthusiastic, and they have uh, so this great idea of what they want to become um, um, or where they want to go. Mm-hmm. And you know, that's great. And I, I usually work with that as well. But I usually like to tell them, okay, let's try this, maybe this. What do, what do you guys think if I take this concept and twist it a bit? And in the case of Mami, for example, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, we have uh, the first five pages, which actually are the the half of the the later half of the book. Um, Mike Chaney sent me some notes uh, describing the scenes, mm-hmm. and my main concern over uh, my main concern there was trying to get these descriptions right. And there was also, like Colin said, a description of the signature characters, which yeah. you know it's it's always an important part, especially for White Wolf. And I, my second concern of uh, uh, my second in my list of priorities, obviously, was nailing the likeness of each character. And one important thing over uh, in that process is try not to say literally what you what you get in the notes, because mm-hmm. I I think there's something very important for an illustrator one skill that is very important and that's that your illustration should complete the text not in the way of saying the same you know i remember this story of paul pop is a comic artist saying that in japan they have a saying that a bad ma- a, ba- a bad comic book it's the one where you see a panel with superman taking off his shirt and uh, a text saying superman take off his shirt and then superman <laughs> yeah. thinking i got to take off my shirt so, I, I believe that's an important part of the process. And for example, in the first part of the book, which, uh, which was commissioned later, I, I didn't get a description, I just got the opening fiction that I was supposed to illustrate. And there's this piece uh, of fiction where one character walks into an airport and mm. sees someone that is so, so beautiful so resplendent that he feels revitalized. He, he feels that he's brought back to life. And, you know, think about it a, a bit and how you illustrate that. You maybe uh, paint this, that signature character with dreamy eyes in a pose saying, oh, I'm so in love with this person or something like that. And instead of that, I just try to capture the the essence of looking at someone beautiful if you say uh, um, and there's something very funny of course with beauty uh, beauty resides in the eye of the beholder and what you think it's beautiful for you may not be beautiful for everyone so instead of trying to come up with the face of a supermodel I just wanted to to give an impression of a beauty of a beautiful person that's why you will see that his face is mostly painted. It's just blocks of paint and there's nothing describing his eyes or his, his in-depth features, if you like. And after that, I just 
send the approved file to the art director and wait for my check. <laughs> hey, can I throw in there? Sure. Um, it's your book, after all. <laughs> well, it's well, it's interesting. The only thing I would add to that is that um, <clears throat> sometimes, you know, it's it's exactly about the needs of that thing. And in the case of Mummy, you pointed out how the first few chapters are one thing and the second few chapters are another. Well, that was intentional because what was what it was doing was compiling two books together. Um, the approach, which I think uh, James or Mike mentioned earlier, of Mummy is different in that there is a this Chinese wall and you are expected not to read parts of it if you're not going to run it. And so the core book for the first time became a virtual box set if you wanted the whole thing mm. even if you were not going to read all the storyteller stuff then you had that option but there are plenty of people who are going to wait and just buy the first half of the book or two-thirds of the book or whatever it is which is the players part specifically and now, now they'll have that option because th this is how we're doing things but you know it also became about designing them differently so player focused stuff needed to be a bit more richer and flavorful and so that's where you have these opening fiction vignettes and we wanted the, the pictures to really pull people in that way the storyteller's book is a little bit more um practical and workman but within the text itself you have you know this flavorful thing so it's not completely boring but they were they were different the second uh bunch of chapters were supposed to have different chapter openings and look differently because that was the players the storytellers oh that's cool i i certainly noticed the difference yep. but i wasn't i, I wasn't aware that yeah yeah so uh that's very interesting but because when you are there's a mindset i get into when i'm illustrating for example werewolf the apocalypse you get these uh, no well sorry not werewolf the apocalypse werewolf the forsaken the the scenes in Werewolf, the action scenes, are so epic that there's no way over it. There's, there's no way I don't want, for example, to draw a, a werewolf fighting a were-rat in the middle of a sewer junction or something like that. There's so, some, something so epic in the text. And I think that the same applies to Mummy, to that later part of the of the book because for example one of the notes was specifically you have one uh, the main mommy ripping off the heart of someone and this, there's no way I'm going to say oh man drawing another mommy ripping someone's heart that's so boring <laughs> right. there's something there's something visceral and there's something very compelling about that uh, but for example in the, in the in the first section of the book there's another part where it describes. Uh, there's one thing, fiction, where one of the signature characters asks for a, a sacrifice of a, cha of a child, right? <laughs> yeah, and and I could. I, I mean, I could go the full spectrum, and yes, well, that show was you a lot of uh, creative yeah. freedom. Like I was really interested to see where you were going to end up with that, um, and it's. I'm happy with all of them. I think they are all not only reflective of the vignette that they are across from, but did you also notice, guys, that um, there's a bit of a reversal even in the design so that now, I know you don't have the book in your hand, but once you have the book in your hand, when you're reading it, you're going to open it and it's going to end up looking like a, uh, a sarcophagus where once you close it, the lid has the writing on it and the character 
which is represented by all these awesome character portraits that Sam did, is laying down inside the, the, the coffin, basically. So the book becomes the experience of opening the coffin and, and having the character in front of you. Like, even that was intentional. And, oh, man, that's so yeah. good. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so that when you're reading it, you get this immersed, like, and that's why I really like these sort of singular-looking pieces that you did for it, like the blonde, is the the more direct you can make that statement at least once or twice so that people feel like, hey, I just opened a, a coffin lid and I'm looking down on a figure. And so, and that one with the, the, the mummy who is sort of ordering this sort of sacrifice, she's still the only figure in it. She's There's a couple statues by her feet, but basically it, it still works on that same level. And here's the other thing about this particular project is I guess I qualify as one of those more um, needy or complicated art directors because I also have a band and I've also ordered art for, for that. And like, so I'm double diva and uh, <laughs> but sometimes being a diva isn't necessarily about um, being small time, like not, not being at a big sort of level of success or something. Sometimes it's um, because <clears throat> there's an art that needs to be served in every portion of the art. And when you have something you're trying to say, um, those needs to get, to get served. And so to bring that back to mummy, certain elements of those full pages there's actually hidden occult iconography in it so when and yes this is the first time i'm telling anyone that straight out but if you go back and you look at the full pages and what's presented there and what's ordered especially in the second book um what you're seeing was ordered specifically because of its occult significance and so you can look at those pictures on three different levels and unfortunately when you're trying to meddle with people on that level you have to get pretty specific with your artists. I totally agree with that. And there's a funny story over uh, in here also that when I started working with Mum with Mummy, I was I just stopped reading. I was I just finished a book called The Magical Revival by Ken, by Kenneth Grant, mm -hmm. which delves deeper into uh, the the Egyptian magic system, especially the ones that uh, was were used by Kent Grant and also in his yoga and kundalini exercises. And I was, when I got the commission to do Mami, I was really excited to bring back, to bring that occult iconography. Right on. All right, Sam. So um, is there any piece that... Uh, you know, you remember, you look back on, you say, man, maybe I could really do this better. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think more importantly, it's kind of like, is there a piece that, because it's one of these things, because I've got friends who are involved, like, and the same friends as James, um, we've got friends that are in um computer game industry, and so obviously they get given various tasks. And so I think it's more than just is there a piece that you think you could have done better? But like, also like, how do you know a piece is finished? <laughs> oh, I actually have. You know, it's funny uh, when you when you're doing art because there's always a love hate relationship with what you do, at least for me. <laughs> okay. And <yeah. laughs> um, but there's one piece that I'm I'm not particularly proud, and uh, I really would love to have a second chance at it and it's the cover for Unknown Armies. It was my first cover. Don't look at it. It's not pretty. Uh, again, <laughs> I'm still waiting. At least. Yeah. yeah, this is a great game. And the funny thing is 
I'm really proud of the interior artwork. It's just when they commissioned the cover, something just didn't click. And I'm still waiting for uh, John Tynes and Greg Stolls to write me, to shoot me an email and tell me, you know, we're going, we're doing the third edition of Unknown Army. <laughs> I think they're going to do that. They, once they get Godlike and stuff out of the way, I think they will revisit. I, I really hope so. And you can have your revenge on that. Or either, man, you really suck at that cover. We're not giving you any work ever. <laughs> so please die. <laughs> no, really. Uh, no, really. Stuff, Sam. <laughs> it's good. I, I'm really happy with all the work in Mummy, really. Um, um, Is there a way, particular piece in Mummy that you, that you, that you're most proud of then? Because yeah. I'm looking at certain pages, and so I'm trying to flick between the full pages. You did one that's not in the book that you guys have, haven't seen. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it didn't get in the book. Yeah, but thing. it's 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 in my Facebook, by the way. If you oh right, yeah, okay. you guys can go check it out. Yeah, um, what uh, what where was? Oh yeah, uh, when a piece is finished, uh, and that's a funny feeling because when sometimes just the image, uh, you know, works, and it's something a bit of a, a, a magic. It's still a mystery to me, but that just happens. And I'm the kind of guy and the kind of artist that really likes to revise piece and do it again, do it again, do it again, do it again. Uh, thank God, or what, or whatever it is, is looking over us in heaven or in hell. Uh, that, for example, Mike Chaney at White Wolf, um, most of the uh, most all the art directors at, at White Wolf are really patient when it comes to that because I'm really torturing Mike when it comes to art. Because I remember, for example, submitting a sketch of the Bane Mummy ripping the heart out and <coughs> reading back one week later saying, You know, Mike, I can really do better. Please let me do again. Please <laughs> let me do this piece again. Let me try again. And he said, Okay, do it again. And I did the same in the wrestling commission for the gun machine. And um, what was the question oh, wow. again? Uh, um, you said when when um, I mean, we've asked numerous. I think we asked like we how know did you know when it was piece. done? And oh, your favorite piece, yeah. Oh, my favorite piece. You know, in mummy, it, in, in mummy for now. In mummy for now. In mummy for now, it has to be the blonde. It has okay. to be the the melting face. It really, yeah. That, well, really that's felt. that's actually. Um, I don't think every piece he did for. Um, for Mummy the Curse core book would necessarily hang well as a piece of fine art. But I think the blonde, <laughs> you could get an enormous print of and put on the wall of a wealthy mm. person's living room and, and they would be reflected well by it. Oh, I, I think I, I'm looking that's, that's a nice thinking, piece of work. I'd like some prints of these at some point. I need yes. to, I need to make alone. room on these walls. Um, and then actually, yeah, for New World Darkness books, then, uh, Sam, which is your possibly your favorite piece you'll, you've had in any any World of Darkness book you've done? And again, <laughs> again, you know, I'm very proud with what I did with World of Darkness. I'm re I really felt that each piece I was delivering was a, steeping, a next stepping stone. And yeah. late, I, I'm very proud of what I did with the, uh, the God Machine Chronicle, which should be coming out in the coming months. And I really think that's <laughs> yeah, 
I know. <laughs> I, I'm so damn proud of these pieces, uh, and I'm really excited to see how people will react to that. But mm. besides that, I'm really proud of my work for Werewolf the Forsaken because, okay. you know, um, the artist for Werewolf the Apocalypse was Ron Spencer. Mm-hmm. He was a big inspiration for me. And again, I said that Werewolf sometimes is about just describing the text because there's so much cool things happening, cool battles. It's such a visceral game. And I never thought I would be capable of doing that sort of stuff. But I think I did. Okay, at least. <laughs> so I'm really proud of that. Yeah, we'll um, we'll um, endeavor. I think Mike will endeavor to ensure we've got like say um, some links in the show notes, or at least some Absolutely. some uh, yeah, we'll get uh, some uh, examples yep. so of some of these favorites. Um, and I think that leads us to a good last question: Is there a game, Sam, that you would love to draw for, or a character from a book or comic or any media that you would like to try and represent in in your kind of style of uh, art I'm afraid that if I answer that question the podcast <laughs> the podcast will be like three hours long but, <laughs> of course uh, yeah and people will have to start uh, bringing back their Lord of the Rings extended edition to have in the back well <laughs> I answered but for a game you know I really love miniature games okay uh, I really love um, a lot of games like, let's say, Legend of the Five Rings, but I think that my stuff will look a bit out of place. And, you know, that's not necessarily not a bad thing, per se, but sometimes you have to respect what the art directors and the legacy of the game has. Yeah. And while I'll, but at the same time, you know, one game that I would really love to do was Cult. Mm-hmm. The second edition of that book is just beautiful. It's just one of the most inspiring pieces of role-playing art you're going to see ever in your life. It's just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And I would love to work, for example, with Kenneth Hyde. I'm a big fan of his work in Trail of Cthulhu and his... Yeah. His and uh, he has a book called Tour de Lovecraft, which was, you know, gorgeous. One of the most inspiring stuff I read about Lovecraft in a long time. Mm-hmm. And for a character, um, I would love to do The Sandman. Uh, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, By the way, choice. Sam, it's a date. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get you and Ken White on a book together. If you do that, if you do that, <laughs> Trail of Cthulhu is a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. Gonna, if you do that, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to sculpt a statue of Set, the god of darkness, and send it to you. Oh, wow. <laughs> I'll say no to that. Uh, it's an appropriate offering, I think. Um, cool. We got any other questions, Mike or James? Well, I think we'll uh, kind of start wrapping this up and moving towards the closing. And uh, one question I have for you, Sam, is what kind of character are you playing in Shadowrun? Oh, everybody's going to hate me, 
But uh, <laughs> Shadowrun is one of those games that has such a lot of cool gear, of cool implants and cool stuff that I really like to do to be one of those Munchkin characters. And right now I'm the face, so I'm an elf, you know, yeah. pretty pretty mm. bad taste. <laughs> an elf, uh, which is the face of the group, and take takes care of the ne- negotiation and all that. Right on, nice, nice. And uh, Colin, uh, we've uh, recently been notified that you're working on an Iron Kingdoms novel. So uh, we're very excited to hear about that. And uh, also very excited to hear that uh, Ari Marmel is working on uh, novels as well. Yeah, I actually got the the chance to be the guy that outlined the entire arc. Um, Right now it's a... um, two trilogies basically and uh uh using the star wars sort of model except we're starting with episode one and uh and yeah the first trilogy is um focuses on the fall of whale and uh i had always wanted to do a fantasy trilogy and i didn't know why this hadn't been done more but i was a big fan you know i've read my share of fantasy novels and i said you know it'd be really cool you have a, a thing focused on war and the first trilogy of this property that's all about war. You get one writer writes the first novel. You get one writer writes the second. And then they split the third, sort of showing those two forces come together. And so first novel focuses on Signar. Second novel focuses on Kador. And then the yeah. third novel we write together. Cool. That's really wicked to know up front. Because um, I'm looking to hopefully run Iron Kingdoms. Cool. After I finish my Requiem Chronicle uh, currently, so um, awesome! Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah I, I've had my head buried in that stuff for for months and months because I didn't want to. I didn't want to half-ass it. Like a uh, tie-in fiction um, <sighs> is only barely satisfying unless it's written by people who just jumped headfirst into the challenge and said, "Yeah, I'll be responsible for all the canon. Yep, I'll be responsible for all the minutia and your setting." And you know, I wanted to feel like it was written by a fan because that's what I want to read. Right on. Yeah. Uh, is really is Ashlyn Dealise going to be in it, or is she she might be too young at that point? Um, no, not 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 a whole lot okay. of that in trilogy one. Uh, there's there's sort of you know, focus has to be placed on, you know, these characters. I I wish we had a lot more room. Like you kind of get George Martin with it, but we didn't. <laughs> I got you. Cool. That's very cool. I have a lot of. Iron Kingdoms miniatures lying around in the studio. I will paint them oh. when I retire. So yes. I, I wasn't aware that you were writing for them. That's very cool. Yeah, I really I, I, the, the whole fiction license, um, like, you know, they spent a lot of time ironing out technical details and stuff, but when it came time to actually say, all right, now what's what are we doing here? What's what's the story of all that? That, that all came to me. So I spent, you know, month buried in 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 the property i'm pretty big iron kingdoms geek now excellent excellent because we do hope to get simon back on to talk about um how to run iron kingdoms rpg as more of a a horror game because through some of the stuff they brought out in um no quarter they've added like ghosts and obviously samurai cults and well i mean that's a pretty dark setting at its darkest (laughs) it's versatile enough to so that you don't have to tell those stories you can focus on sort of lighter elements in it but in terms of having evidence to say this is how dark this can get oh there's plenty i mean crick stuff just look at (laughs) cricks i call it kind of like sharp with uh it's kind of like sharp with um with 
fantasy horror elements because yes. it, yes. it's kind of got that look to it and it's really great um, awesome and uh, yeah um, Mike we have some questions from our mailbag yeah we do so Colin Sandriger asks us um, uh, he's wondering what you wrote in the Orpheus core book and also were you uh, aware while writing for the core book of, of the unfolding meta plot that would be uh, appearing in the later supplements for the Orpheus core book I um, I wrote a lot of the basic systems stuff so every attribute right up including all those little tiny fiction vignettes I had to write like 60 of them for that book uh, it, it was a little eye bleeding actually by the end but um, yeah, in terms of the meta plot uh, I knew that because Lucien and I, I had talked about it working on the core book that at the end of the core book as it were um, the the, the idea was that Orpheus group explodes and then it goes off and that there will be this meta plot um, uh, chronicle told throughout the supplement sort of thing. And there was a lot of focus paid on the movie model approach, which Lucien and I were totally on the same page about. But I didn't know specifically where he wanted to uh, sort of take the meta plot arc starting with the supplements. Mm-hmm. And my schedule forbidden me from even working on any of them until I think the very last one and by then there's no point so uh, but they're definitely two different sort of uh, continuities you know there's obvious the game presented core and then there's the craziness of the uh, plot supplement gotcha awesome Sandrigger also asks if you were upset when writing World of Darkness Mafia that you weren't able to include cool Italian blood magics like uh, World of Darkness Gypsies <laughs> I know uh, it, I was so tempted to uh, to to make really ridiculous racist uh, <laughs> uh, mechanics. For, you know, hey, look, it's a Sicilian sorcery. Um, but uh, no, actually, uh, I'm I'm pretty happy with the, the approach we took and what we ended up writing. I will say though that um, one of my memories though from that book is that it was some of the nastiest red lines I ever got. Justin absolutely unloaded on me during that book. Hmm. Interesting to hear. Cool. And Sam, what kind of art are you uh, doing right now? Uh, I'm working and I'm doing some images inspired in the Wagner operas for a oh, wow. opera house in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And this is stuff, I'm, it was a big revelation. It was indeed a Twilight of the Gods because Wagner, you know, makes the Lord of the Rings look, look like a bad Dungeons and Dragons yeah. <laughs> session. It's um, and I'm really excited about this. Um, I'm also fin- uh, I'm starting to work on the new Monte Cook game, whose name I honestly can't pronounce um, in English. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, I, can, I can pronounce in, it in Spanish, Numenidia, something like that. Yeah, that's, it, that sounds about right. Yeah, I'm working for one of the spin-off games, and it's pretty exciting to have that. It does look pretty wicked, that game. Um, yeah. Cool. James, do you have any last questions that you want to add in from anything else? Um, no, no, I'm, I'm good. Uh, uh, good. Uh, it's, it's, it's been really amazing uh, hearing you guys talk. Uh, unfortunately, I do, I do quite often end up... Um, oh, we dropped you in the deep end. It was just to make sure we had everyone that's read <laughs> enough of Mummy to, uh, to um, offer some insight, but... Um, I'm sure we'll talk about more stuff once we've digested this book a bit more. 
Which kind of leads us on to the last question, I think. Oh, it certainly does. <laughs> All right, Sam. If you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? <laughs> a household... <laughs> a what? <laughs> a household appliance. Oh, I will be a refrigerator because <laughs> it's easier to store corpses on it. Yeah. Enough <laughs> <laughs> said. Um... <laughs> Hmm. Well, that was uh, <clears throat> disturbing. Colin, if you could be a household appliance, which would you be and why? It would depend on how narrow your definition of household appliance It's very is. broad. Eddie Webb said he'd be an iPhone. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, well, then I, I, I would like to say something glib and perverse about being available to women as an appliance. But <laughs> in, in, all, in, in all likelihood, uh, if I were a household appliance, it would be a big flat screen TV. Okay. Fair enough. And why? Because I, uh, I spend a lot of time ingesting um, media that comes through it, whether it's news, TV, film. Like I, I'm just a, I've got my face glued to a screen a lot. Okay. Cool. Okay. Awesome. Um. So real quick, Sam, what's your website if people want to uh, like get in touch with you or check out your work? Uh, you can just run a Facebook search and add me as a friend in Facebook. Um, uh, I just update it with art, so you will get 5,000 invitations to play Farmville. And you can <laughs> also see my work at um, Paintagram, which, you know, it's like a pentagram, but with paint, uh, .blogspot.com. Mm -hmm. And at DeviantArt, which my username is Paintagram again. Yeah. Right on. My favorite internet meme from this week going around uh, shows uh, a snapshot of the boss from Office Space. And the little language says, yeah, I'm going to need you to stop sending me Facebook requests. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Nice. And uh, Colin, how about yourself? How about me? What? Oh, uh, do you have a website or some way that people can get in touch with you? Uh, same thing. I'm 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 a big Facebook nerd. Uh, I don't um, maintain a whole lot. Uh, I have a band, and so most of the rest of my internet effort and presence is sort of focused there. But people who have no interest in my music um, can hit me up on Facebook. Oh, you can plug your band if you want. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, the, the band is Tolkarum, and we're a DC band, of course, because that's where I am. And we are um, hip deep in, in our second studio length concept album, and you know because I don't have enough to do. And uh, when that is done, it's going to be pretty epic. Oh, I want to say one last thing. By the way, mm -hmm. if you are in Facebook, please never ever tag me, me or calling into <laughs> your shitty art. Nobody <laughs> likes that. <laughs> I'm sorry, but. There's a trend out there that every upcoming artist adds one oh, art director right. or another artist and tags them in their pictures, and it's quite annoying. Yeah. But, but, I mean, everyone hates me anyway, but it has to no, be said. That, 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 that's a breach of netiquette, I think. <laughs> You're right. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> right. Right on. Okay. Colin, Sam, Chris, and James, thank you very much for attending this episode of Darker Days Radio. I know it ran a little long, but... It was a great episode. Awesome. People are going to love this. <laughs> so, Thanks, Mike. With that, everyone, have a good night. Enjoy the game, guys. 
Oh, wait up, Mike. Wait, 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 wait what, what did I do? Us? Where can people find us? Oh, uh, yeah. <clears throat> of course. Uh, darker-days.org <laughs> is our website. You can check us out at uh, Darker Days Radio on Twitter. Uh, as well, you can email us at darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And we have uh, facebook.com slash darkerdaysradio. And we are on G+, with our sweet community, which is always hopping. It's pretty freaking active there. So, yeah, people should drop, drop by. They definitely should. And, and they should it. also join my World of Darkness Gypsies game. Oh, yeah. Bam. All right. And with that, everyone, good night. Good night. Good night. Uh, you can just run my name in, uh, in the Facebook search. Whoa, Colin, you're starting to sound like Megatron is attacking you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, finally. No, um...